Starwalker Studios presents Dungeon Master's Journey, your multidimensional D&D podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 280 of Dungeon Master's Journey. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and the art of dungeon mastering. I've been running RPGs for over 28 years now, and I produce this show in the hopes that you can benefit from my experience, my triumphs, and my mistakes. So today I am coming back at you. Um, It's the end of June when I'm, I'm recording this. Hopefully it will still be the end of June when you're listening to this. Hopefully it won't take me too long to uh, produce and edit it. Um, It's been about two months since I put out the last episode and um, yeah, I hope, I hope everyone's doing well. Um, I hope everyone's healthy and safe. Um, It's a crazy time <laughs> we live in right right now and um honestly i, I don't want to go into it because uh i i have a lot i could say <laughs> and uh yeah i i, I don't want to open that pandora's box because then that's all i'll talk about for an hour um so i i will just um, suffice to say that um, I hope everyone is well and healthy and taking care of themselves and the people around them. I hope you're wearing your masks and doing your social distancing. And if you're someone that believes you shouldn't be doing that, please, for the sake of the rest of us, go educate yourself. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and and um, at least here in the United States, and, and I know in some other places in the world, there's a, a lot of... Um, in unrest as we struggle to deal finally, hopefully with our systemic racism. Um, so hopefully real change is happening and, and will stick and continue to happen. And, um, yeah, I, I just want for, for all my non white, non male listeners out there, I just want to know I'm, I'm with you, all of you. And, um, you know, I, I was just telling my, my wife last night, I, I don't know in my life, I don't think I've ever stood by while someone was uh, treated improperly, whether because of their gender or their race or their sexual preference. Um, I don't recall ever being witness to something like that and standing by and not doing or saying something. Um, but it it's possible it happened. I, I don't have a perfect memory. Um, but I have made it a commitment for myself that from this day forward, um, that will never happen. I will never stand there and watch someone being treated or talked to inappropriately without at the very least giving the offending person a piece of my mind if there's nothing more I can do. Um, and I think that's important for all of us. Um, it, it's easy to blame people in power, but we all have choices we make every day and those choices matter and make the right choices. And yeah, so, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, because that's not what you came here for. You came here, uh, to talk about D and D to talk about dungeon mastering, game mastering, 
um, running games, playing games. And, and that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show. I, I promise. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I do feel the need to at least acknowledge the elephant in the room and not pretend that it doesn't exist because we all know it does. And also to, to let everyone know where I stand, because I think in, in this time, I mean, it's always been important, but I think now people are finally understanding that it's important to let everyone around you know where you stand um, and to, you know, stand with people who are less fortunate and, and maybe need our help. So, yeah. Um, so I have kind of an interesting topic today. As I said, it's been a couple months since I put out an episode. Um, I've heard from some of you, a few of you, uh, and and thank you to everyone I've heard from um, in whatever way you've gotten a hold of me. I, I really appreciate feedback and um, communication from from listeners. And I, I'll tell you quite honestly, the, the very reason this episode exists, the very reason I'm recording this today, the very reason you're listening to this right now is because I've gotten some very nice emails from people either just express, expressing uh, appreciation of the show or giving me ideas of things to talk about. And enough of that happened that I felt like I, I needed to do another episode. Um, I haven't decided to end the show. Um, I, I've always felt that, that if or when I decided to do that, I would do a finale episode and let everybody know that I was ending the show and not just kind of leave people hanging. Um, so I, I have not made that decision, but I, I have gotten to a point where, um, I don't know if you could tell from the content, but for the past, I don't know how long year or so, um, I've been struggling a bit with the show, um, struggling to come up with topics or things to talk about. Um, honestly, that's why I've spent so much time discussing the DMG and before that the player's handbook, because it, it gave me something to talk about and, and gave me kind of a plan and a strategy where each week I knew what to do. Um, because as, as I've said on here a few times, I, I feel like I've said everything I can think of to say about game mastering at this point. And, and so often um, when someone does ask me a question or suggest a topic, I respond with something like, Oh, I talked about that in episode X, Y, Z. It's so rare that something comes up that I haven't actually talked about, usually numerous times. Um, so, you know, if you have an opinion on that, let me know. If, if you feel like it's okay to retread old ground, um, if you think it's okay to do episodes on topics that I discussed years ago, uh, let me know. As far as how to let me know, you can always shoot me an email at dungeonmastersjourney at gmail.com. Um, another great way to give feedback, especially if it's relevant to the show or to a specific episode, would be to leave a comment on my website on the show notes uh, for the particular episode. I, I realized recently that I never suggest that to people. I always suggest tweeting at me or joining the Discord or the MeWe or emailing me. And I should really be asking people more to comment on the website because... Um, you know, the more traffic I get to the website, the better for the show. Um, so yeah, and also it'd be a lot easier to find those comments when I'm ready to do an episode than trying to find something someone told me on Twitter. Like Twitter's probably the worst thing. I mean, it's great if you want to just say hi or, or 
you know, shoot the shit or whatever. Um, but if you have an actual like feedback for the show or a suggestion for an episode or something like that, it'd be much better to leave a comment on the website or shoot me an email because then I can find it when I'm writing an episode. Um, so yeah, let me know, you know, I tend to think I, I shouldn't make episodes about topics I've covered before, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, cause ultimately right or wrong is decided by you all and, and what you want to hear. And if people want to hear stuff I talked about three years ago or a year ago or whatever, again, um, then, then I can do that and it would definitely make things easier. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry, I'm going off on tangents today. Um, I have been in this place where, uh, for a long, long time, I did my best to put out an episode every week. I did that for years, hundreds of episodes. And as I've gotten less and less feedback, and as it's become more and more difficult to find new things to talk about, I've now found myself in this place where, um, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, for, I don't know, last year or so, I worked really hard to put out as many episodes as I can. Um, and I feel like I put out some episodes that weren't my best episodes just because I was trying to put something out. So I think it would be better to wait till I actually have something to say and then make an episode. So I guess what I'm saying is, is no promises <laughs> um, that there will be episodes coming out every week. Um, which you've probably already figured that out. Uh, cause like I said, it's been two months since the last episode. Um, but on the other hand, I, I'm not done with this. Um, so if you're someone who enjoys the show and you're unhappy when there aren't new episodes or you would prefer more episodes, the best thing you can do is, uh, give me some feedback, ask me a question, give me a topic to talk about on the show. Again, do so on the website or shoot me an email um, you know, another great way, of course, is to become a patron and support the show monetarily. Um, that's a huge help. But um, yeah, th those are the two things you can do. And, you know, I'll, I'll just be honest, when I get an email from someone, whether it's a question or a comment on an episode or just someone saying, hey, I love the show, it motivates me to make more episodes. And when I get a new patron or a, a donation on the website, I just got a donation on the website the other day. Um, that motivates me as well, because I feel like, um, you know, you guys are stepping up to, to help support what I'm doing. And the least I can do is, is give you some new content. So, uh, speaking of that, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to Michael, uh, for your donation on the website. I really appreciate it. And, you know, that's something else I don't mention maybe as much as I should, if you're not comfortable becoming a patron and, and committing to a monthly subscription, as it were, um, you can always make a one-time donation on the site. But I'm here today partly, like I said, because I got some nice emails, um, one of which I'm going to share with you today. I have some others I, I will share in future ep episodes, but I don't. Um, I know not everybody likes hearing that kind of stuff, so I don't want to do more than one an episode. Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've gotten some nice emails and, and comments and whatnot. So that's part of the reason. And the other reason is because the other day, an idea hit me of something to talk about. And I think it'll be a fun thing to talk about because it's something that if I just state it, which you already know what it is from the title of the episode, 
If I just say, maybe you don't want to use everything in the player's handbook, uh, that might be a controversial statement or opinion to a lot of people. Um, and I'm not trying to clickbait or anything, but those are always interesting discussions when you start out with a premise that a lot of people might initially uh, disagree with. And, and you know, if, if I can, by the end of the discussion, uh, convince you to agree with it or at least get you to question your immediate disagreement and think about it, then that's a good thing. And, and that's an interesting topic to explore. So what I mean by that specifically, because, you know, there are some optional rules in the player's handbook, not as many as the DMG. And obviously you don't need to use those. Like for instance, feats or multi-classing are both optional rules. You don't have to use, but I'm not even talking about that. That's pretty obvious that you don't have to use the optional rules. I'm talking about core stuff in the game um specifically what i'm really going to talk about today is the classes and the subclasses um but also to some degree um the races or what we should really call species um are another one and and the main reason i'm not going to talk so much about that today is because one i've already talked about that a lot in a lot of my world building episodes i talked about a lot about uh player character species or races if you have to use that um, antiquated term, um, and how deciding what species players can have characters as, um, does a lot to define your setting, you know? So, so we're getting a, a new to D and D setting coming out in July Theros, which is a magic the gathering setting, which is my favorite magic the gathering setting. I'm really excited about it. Um, and in Theros there, you know, you don't have elves and dwarves and halflings and things like that. Player character species are things like, uh, Minotaur and, uh, Centaur. I think, I, I don't remember what all it is, but they're, they're different. They're different species or different races than the standard vanilla, you know, elves, dwarves, half elves, all of that. So that's something that makes that setting different and defines that setting. Uh, Eberron, you know, you have the changelings in the Warforged. You know, you don't have those in other settings as much. So that's part of what makes Eberron Eberron, right? So that's something I've already talked about a lot. And, and that's not something that's, I, I think, going to blow anyone's mind. I, I think we all, you know, have thought about that. But um the eureka moment I had the other day was when the realization hit me that not only do you not have to use all of the classes in the player's handbook, you probably honestly don't want to use all of them. And probably I hate to say the word shouldn't use all of them. And this is a point I don't think is made in the book by the folks at wizards. And if it is, and I'm wrong about this, please let me know. And, and if you can tell me where it is in the book, I'd, I'd love to see it. Um, but now, and I never thought this way before, but now I view what's in the player's handbook as kind of like an all-you-can-eat buffet of options for your game. But just like if you go to an all-you-eat buffet, you don't necessarily want to put everything on your plate and try to eat everything 
you know, most people will pick and choose their favorite things to put on their plate. Um, you know, if you don't like Brussels sprouts, you'll pass on the Brussels sprouts, right? Maybe, maybe get some extra dessert. <laughs> That's usually what I would do. Um, so in, in a similar way, um, I, I think what we really have with the player's handbook is we have a buffet of options to choose from. And really in a given game, you probably shouldn't be using all of them. And, and I'll get into more of that as we talk about this. Um, so I'm curious, I, I don't recall seeing that anywhere in the player's handbook where they explicitly stated, um, you don't need to use all these classes and subclasses. And in fact, we recommend that you not use all of the classes and subclasses, um, because frankly, they don't all work together. They, they don't all fit together, which is really the, the main idea here, um, that we're going to unpack. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. So that's my, my, um, perhaps controversial, uh, realization and belief now is that no matter what kind, kind of game you're running, unless maybe you're running a forgotten realms game, but even then, um, most likely, uh, you don't want to use everything you want to pick and choose. Um, so, so we'll get into that. Um, but before we get into that really quickly, I do want to share, um, this amazing email I got. I got this email in May, um, from a listener named Jeffrey. And I, I believe I told Jeffrey this when I responded to him, but this is probably the coolest email I've ever gotten in regards to one of my podcasts, just, um, because of what he said, it, it really truly made my day. It was, it was great. And I, I thought I would share it with you just because, um, it was a great email and I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate this kind of feedback and uh, the least I can do for Jeffrey is give him a shout out on the show and thank him publicly. So thank you, Jeffrey, for your kind comment and also share it with you. So he says, uh, I've wanted to drop you a note for a while now, but have been lazy. Hey, that's okay. <laughs> I've been listening to you for a few years. You're my construction buddy. I recited my house two years ago with your help. Last year, we built chicken coops and decks together. I rebuilt the engine of my 76 Ford F-150 this winter, and you hung out in my toolbox. I'm now building up my garden with you. Thanks for coming alongside me and offering DM advice the whole time. I run a game for my 13-year-old daughter and some friends. Um, that's awesome, and you're most welcome. And it's just really cool because I totally, I totally get what Jeffrey's saying here. Um, I don't listen to podcasts as much as I used to just because of, of my lifestyle now. I just don't have the time or opportunity to listen to them as much as I used to. But um, when I worked in biotech, I listened to podcasts eight or more hours a day while I was working a lot of times. And um, so, yeah, there, there are podcasters I, I could email and tell them, you know, they helped me work on breast cancer research. Um <laughs> Which I probably, I, I wish I would have done that because it probably would have made their day and been kind of cool. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure all of you listening to this have similar stories you could tell of things you've done while you were listening to your favorite podcast or whatever. Um, so that's just really cool. Um, 
So anyway, he says, uh, thanks for being awesome. And thanks for letting me talk to you when I'm working on a project. And you're most welcome. And I just apologize that I never seemed to respond <laughs> when you talk to me. Um, but yeah, that's great. That That's great stuff. So so thank you, Jeffrey, for that. And uh, yeah, if, if you're someone who's listened to the, the show while, while doing something interesting or, or noteworthy, let me know. That'd be really cool uh, to find out what kind of things people are doing while they're listening to this show. All right. So, so let's get into it. So why do I say that you may not and probably don't want to use everything in the player's handbook? Um, so yeah, let's talk about the classes in the book. So I've been thinking about world building again. So that's another thing, another uh, shout out for some feedback. If you were a fan of the world building episodes when I used to do those and you'd like to hear more of that kind of thing, let me know because I've been thinking a lot about my world of Primordia lately, um, thinking about changes I want to make and things I want to do with it. And um, so yeah, it, I, I could easily, uh, do some episodes about what I'm thinking about and, and what I'm doing as far as world building. So if you're interested in that, let me know, uh, leave a comment in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com or, uh, shoot me an email, dungeonmasterjourney at gmail.com. So that's actually what led to this kind of realization, this kind of eureka moment for me as I, I was thinking about my world um, of Primordia. And without going too much into it, there are some pretty major changes I want to make to the world and, and just kind of how it's set up um, based on running in the world, running a few campaigns in it now, and, and just kind of my experiences with it, new ideas. Um, some of the ideas I had, although I think they were really cool from a conceptual standpoint, from a just a, wow, that's a cool idea standpoint, uh, from an actual gameplay experience at the table standpoint, and from a creating adventures using this setting standpoint, I found some of them to at least to me be problematic. And instead of just making wide sweeping changes or retconning things or rebooting the setting or something like that. Um, I didn't want to do that because I haven't even been running in it that long. And I thought it would be way more fun and cool, especially for the players. If instead I figured out ways to make the changes I want to make, but have it be things that actually happen in the world itself. And so the way I think I'm, I'm going to do a lot of that is once I finish the Blood of the Avatars campaign uh, that I'm currently running, I'm I'm going to advance the timeline by a bit, maybe a century. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how long I'm going to go into the future. Um, but that way I can have some, some pretty major changes that have taken place. And, and some of the things that are going to happen uh, are going to be influenced by what the players in, in my current campaign do and in the choices they make uh, specifically at the, at the end of the campaign, or at least it may not be the actual end of the campaign, it, but the end of the kind of the arc that I've been planning for the campaign since the beginning 
at the end of that, they, there's going to be a, a very specific decision that they will have to make that will greatly influence the way that the world goes from that point forward. Um, so it'll de- kind of depend on what they decide to do, how things go. Um, and part of that is just because I remember hearing stories when I first started playing D and D back in high school, 20, 30 years ago. Um, I, I remember hearing stories about, you know, a, a player playing in a DM's homebrew world and seeing the repercussions of things that other characters that player had played had done in previous campaigns. Um, so not only seeing the impact your character has on the world in the current campaign, but then in future campaigns, continuing to see that impact as it ripples out through space and time in the setting. And I mean, what better payoff could there be for a player than that, than to have the first character you played in the setting eventually become a hero or a legend or even a god that everybody in the setting knows the name of, you know, that kind of thing I I think is super cool. Um, And that's something that that's one of, to me, that's one of the big benefits of doing your own setting is, is that you can do things like that. Um, So that was one reason I wanted to do the thing in world and tie it into what my current players were doing um, so that hopefully, you know, I'll run more campaigns with these guys as players and, and they'll get to experience that and, and kind of see the impact of the decisions they made in the first campaign and, and kind of how that shaped how the, the world changes and evolves, uh, through time going forward. And I thought that would be really cool. So, um, as, as just kind of part of that, I was just kind of brainstorming and just letting my mind go wherever it wanted to go. And for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, um, when I start thinking about things like this, I, I often start thinking about a, a new campaign, which, which is not to say that I'm planning a new campaign or, you know, writing a new campaign or wanting to run a new campaign or anything like that. But for some reason, I, I start thinking about, how would I present this to players in a new campaign? Like, let's say we finished Blood of the Avatars. We're going to start a new campaign. Maybe it's 100 years in the future now. Um, what, what do I want to do with that kind of session zero stuff or, or with the setup for the new campaign to reflect the setting and to reflect specifically the changes I've made or the kind of new focus I, I want to bring to it. Um, and so I start thinking right away about player character options because I've talked about on the show a lot and I just mentioned it earlier, how that's a great way to give some flavor to your game or to your campaign or your setting is in what, player character options you allow and and don't allow that does a lot to shape the feel of the game and and kind of the theme and and all that kind of stuff um and luckily now you know fifth edition has been around long enough we have so many options to choose from um even if you don't get into the unearthed arcana stuff the the playtest stuff um we we have everything in the player's handbook uh there's lots more player character options in Xanathar's guide 
And then there's also been new options here and there and other books that they put out and adventures and, and things like that. So, you know, if you pull everything together, there are way more options for uh, races and sub races and classes and subclasses than you're ever going to need for a given game or a given adventure. And there definitely is such a thing as giving players too many options. Believe me, I've done it before. Um, if you make everything available to them, um, some players will, will be fine with it, but some players will get analysis paralysis and you give them 50 classes to choose from or subclasses and they don't know which one to pick or it takes them forever to to decide. Um, so there is, I think such a thing is, is having too many options, which is a new opinion of mine. Um, for a long time, I thought the more options I could give players, the better. And, and that, that was the end of it. You know, having 20 classes to choose from is better than 10 and having 30 is better than 20. Um, so, so it's kind of a new opinion of mine that, that that actually isn't the case. There, there does come a point of diminishing returns where you're not really adding anything. You're just adding more stuff, but you're not really adding meaning, if, if that makes sense. So I, I guess that would be one thing to ask yourself when you're thinking about what options you do want to allow in a given adventure or campaign is what, what does this add? What does this bring to the table um, and is that something I want or does it even bring anything to the table? I mean, that's a problem with a lot of the unearth arcana stuff is a lot of it's like, well, is that real? Is this really bringing something new and unique to the table? Or is it just a very slightly different spin on something we already have, which is often the case. Um, and, and at which point you're adding complexity with no real upside. So why do that to yourself? Or to your players. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm kind of beating around the bush, aren't I? I, I? I should just go into it. I thought about how to organize this. And I decided what I'm going to do is I think this is one of those things that's just best to explain through an example. So I'm going to kind of walk you through what I'm thinking for Primordia, or at least for the next campaign I run in Primordia. I'm not, I don't retcon. I, I try to avoid that at all costs. So I'm not going to go to my current players and say, hey, your class is no longer allowed or something like that. We're going to finish the campaign. I'm going to advance the timeline a bit. Um, and then, you know, we'll start a new campaign and, and that's when I'll, I'll make changes. And, and these are changes that are going to happen in the world. Um, and, Again, it's not a thing of I'm not using this class because I don't like it. Like there has to be a better reason. Well, there isn't necessarily because <laughs> there there is one class I'm thinking of that it kind of came down to just I don't like it. Um, but even that class, it, which is the Druid, um, specifically the uh, the Beastmaster Druid, that that's the one I don't like. I, I finally decided to take out the Druid completely. Um, but the other reasons were that it just doesn't fit. Um, but the Beastmaster, I just don't like it. It also doesn't fit, but I just don't like it, um, mechanically as a, as a class to DM for, um, so yeah. So all of this comes from a setting perspective and a story perspective. 
so this isn't a thing of I'm taking the player's handbook and ripping pages out and saying, I'm never going to allow a druid in any of my games ever again. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm doing. I am thinking about a specific campaign with a in a specific time period in a specific setting. And, and that's what I suggest you do. This isn't a thing of blanket statements of, you know, these are my canon classes for D&D for all my games. Now, if you run all your games in the same setting, the same time period, then maybe you can do that. But if you're someone like me where every campaign's a little different, maybe a different setting, maybe a different whatever, then you you might revisit this with each campaign and decide what works for this campaign. So for instance, to to go back to the Druids, since I already brought it up, I'm not saying there there aren't Druids in Primordia. There most certainly are. I just don't think they, for this campaign I'm thinking about at least, I don't think they work as a player character class. They're maybe druid NPCs or or NPCs that are the equivalent of druids because I don't use player character classes for NPCs. Um, But for various reasons, it, it doesn't work as a player character class for me for this specific campaign. Um, again, it's a specific campaign. I'm not saying druids suck or or you shouldn't play druids or you shouldn't let people play druids. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for my setting, for this time period, for this campaign, druids aren't going to work for player characters. And um, I'll get into that, but I want to have some structure to this or I'll get totally lost. Um, so what I decided to do is I'm just going to go through the play, player's handbook Um class by class in order and talk about what I'm using, what I'm not using and some of the reasons why. All right. So first up B is for barbarian. So barbarian is going to be the first class we're going to talk about today. And again, um, I, I know I keep saying this, but I just want to make it crystal clear. I am using this as an example to illustrate my point. My point here is that your game that you're running or thinking about running you want to do this, I think. I think you want to go through the player's handbook and any other sources you're going to use and decide which classes work for your campaign and which don't, and then let your players know that before they make their characters. Because I think the assumption a lot of us make, and this has definitely been the case for me, is that everything in the player's handbook is fair game. And I need to do as much as I can to keep that so. And if you've listened to my world building episodes or you go back and check them out, when I talked about player character races, I debated this a lot because I don't like gnomes. I've never liked gnomes. I don't feel like, I feel like between dwarves and halflings, gnomes are redundant. You know, um, pick two of those three and have them in your world. But if you have all three, there's redundancy there. Um, and what's the point, you know? Um, and, and for me, the gnomes are the most redundant. I mean, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of halflings either, but so many people are such huge fans of the Lord of the Rings that I feel like I have to have halflings. Um, or honestly, I would have cut out gnomes and halflings back then. Um, but if you listen to those discussions, That was a big thing that I mentioned over and over again is I want to be really careful removing things from the player's handbook because I think the player should be able to assume that everything in the player's handbook is fair game. Um, But I've 
completely changed my mind on that. I've done a 180 and I think that should not be assumption. I think most of us, maybe all of us make that assumption, but that should not be the assumption. We should look at this again as like a buffet of options and we're going to pick and choose um, not just the ones we like the most, but the ones that fit what we're wanting to do the best. And especially if there's anything that just flat out doesn't fit or you foresee it causing problems for one reason or another, then don't allow it. Um, so we'll, we'll revisit these as I discuss these, but there's, there's reasons you might do this. Um, a class might not work because it doesn't fit the setting. A class might not work because a member of that class doesn't make sense that they would be an adventurer or that they would be involved in this specific adventure. Um, a class might not work because it will lead to a type of character that you don't want to run for, for whatever reason. Um, maybe it's like the Beastmaster Druid for me personally, where I find um, a lot of summoning happening and even the, the wild shape stuff to be far more of a pain in the ass than, than it's worth um, mechanically. I mean, if you listen to the Sage Advice uh, segments from the Dragon Talk podcast, um, how, how many of those discussions revolve around wild shape and all the wrenches that wild shape throws into the game and all these rules they've had to come up with just to deal with wild shape. And you have to wonder why someone didn't just say, Hey, wouldn't it just be easier to just get rid of wild shape, (laughs) which I'm sure someone did, but that was one of their legacy darlings that they felt they had to keep to, uh, you know, keep all the old D and D players buying books, I guess. Um, but maybe to the, uh, to the detriment of the game. I I don't know. Um, so that, so that might be a reason you just don't like the mechanics or how they work, or you don't like how they slow down gameplay. Um, or like I said, it might lead to a kind of character you don't want. Like maybe you don't want someone playing an assassin in your heroic adventure, because why on earth would an evil assassin, because how could you be anything other than evil if you're an assassin? You kill people for money. <laughs> um, how, how does that fit in a heroic story as one of the heroes? How does that character fit in the group? Now, if you want to tell a story where one of the main characters ends up being an antagonist and ends up working against the other characters and ends up being a villain... And the players are on board for that, and that's what you want to do, then the assassin might be great. But unless that's what you want to do, aren't you just kind of setting yourself up to fail if you're wanting to tell a, a traditional heroic tale of heroes doing doing good and and um confronting danger and overwhelming odds to to help the little people? An assassin doesn't fit into that at all. So so why? <laughs> Why give a a player a, a bomb that they can set off in the middle of your campaign? It'd be a lot easier just to say, hey, guys, no assassins this time. It's just not going to work. So so that's a reason um, that you might. Um, cultural reasons, you know, and this is what we're going to get into here with the Barbarian. Some of these classes um, reflect very specific cultures or respect reflect very specific subgenres of fantasy And unless that's what you're doing, it may not fit. All right. So those are some general things. We may get some more teased out as we go through this. 
So we start out with the barbarian and the barbarian is one where from, you know, at least my next campaign in primordia, um, it's not going to be an option for player characters. Um, the reason is my, my next campaign, I don't like really have a full campaign planned or anything like that, but, um, basically in a nutshell, um, kind of my working title for it, which I'm sure won't be the title, but it's the working title is the last city. And, and the idea of the campaign is I'm really going to double down on my city of Alondria. And this is going to be in a time period where it's the last city. It's the last one. The rest are all gone. There's just one city left in the world, or, or maybe there's just one people know about, but for all intents and purposes, there's just one city left in the world. And the idea of that campaign is everybody's from the city because there's nowhere else they could be from. Everyone's a citizen of the city and they go have adventures, whatever. So, well, right away, it's obvious why barbarian doesn't work with that, right? Barbarians aren't citizens of cities. Barbarians are members of nomadic tribes, right? So barbarian is one of those classes um, I think monk is a class like this. I think druid, depending on what you're doing, can be a class like this. Um, there are others probably too, where you almost you almost need a campaign that's for that, right? That there are some campaigns where the barbarian would be the perfect thing to play and would make a lot of sense. Same thing with the druid, same thing with the monk. But most campaigns, they honestly they don't fit, right? Um if you're playing a barbarian in most campaigns, you are playing a character who has left their homeland, has given up their way of life, and has gone to adventure with these city folk, <laughs> right? And at that point, how are you even still a barbarian? The things that actually define you as a barbarian, you've given up on other than the not wearing armor and using battle axes or whatever. You know, that's not what makes you a barbarian. What makes you a barbarian is your culture and your worldview. And you gave all that up to become an adventurer because you're living in cities now. Um, you know, I, I mean, I hope, I hope you see that. Um, and, and that's the thing. And that's why I think that these options in the player's handbook, they're like, they're like a buffet. I, I just keep coming back to that uh, metaphor. I can't think of a better metaphor right now. They're, they're, a, a smorgasbord of options coming from all kinds of subgenres of fantasy and types of fantasy and, and are not intended to be used or at least should not be. I, I don't know what the folks at wizards in, intend, but should not be intended to be used together. Just like you don't go to a buffet and put some of every single thing on your plate, especially like a, a buffet where you might have, very different types of food. You might have American food and Chinese food and Thai food and Japanese food and, and maybe Peruvian food, Mexican food. I don't know. You know, do you, do you really want, if you have that much of a variety in the cafe, do you really want some, some of everything in your, on your plate? Probably not. You might want some kind of theme to your dinner. Like, Hey, I'm going to focus on the seafood or I'm going to focus on the Mexican food or whatever. Right. So the same thing with a campaign, I think. You know, and if you've listened to much of this show, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the Forgotten Realms. And the number one reason I'm not a huge fan of the Forgotten Realms is that's exactly what the Forgotten Realms is. It's the, the, it's the kitchen sink and everything else. 
It's every subgenre of fantasy from, you know, high fantasy to, um, what do you call it? You know, grim, dark fantasy to sword and sorcery. It's all mashed together in one setting. Um, even different cultures, you know, which they, they're moving away from that now. Cause a lot of that's, um, uh, problematic in this more enlightened age, um, cultural appropriation and all of that. But, you know, used to, you know, we had the quote native American part of the forgotten realms and the quote oriental part of the forgotten realms. Right. It's like, no, no, we don't want to make a separate setting for that. We're just going to mash everything into one setting. And what you end up with is a setting that lacks identity. And, you know, people will argue, oh, you know, Forgotten Realms has identity coming out of its ass. But when you ask people, what is the identity of the Forgotten Realms? They start naming famous characters from from novels like Dritz Duerden or Wolfgar or Elminster or whatever. So, so that's what makes your setting distinct is, is these well-known characters, but that's not the setting. That's it. Those characters could have been from anywhere. Dritz could have been from the underdark of almost any D and D world that has an underdark, you know, it wouldn't have mattered, especially because the dark elves weren't really defined until, um, R.A. Salvatore started writing about him. I mean, he's the one that, that came up with a lot of the dark elf stuff. So he could have put that book in any setting that he wanted to, it wouldn't have mattered because he was making it all up anyway. So my point is, you know, if that's what you want from your D and D game, you know, great. And, and honestly, that's what I've been going for for most of my games in fifth edition is, you know, I, I allow as much as I can, um, you know, as far as player character options, as far as classes and feats and subclasses and races and sub races, I, I try to allow as much as I can make it as diverse of um, choices as I can. Um, but I've come to realize is, is what you end up with is you end up with something with no identity, with no soul of its own. You know, I think of, you know, my favorite books of all time, The Wheel of Time. It, it's so distinct and unique and, and its own thing. You know, there aren't any elves in the Wheel of Time. There aren't any dwarves in the Wheel of Time. It's not just another regurgitation of Tolkien. Um, it's different. It, it has its own distinct things. Yeah, it has all kinds of fantasy and literary tropes everywhere. You know, we've got, we've got King Arthur. We've got Excalibur. Um, we've got, you know, the, the Sauron kind of character. Like, like we have a lot of those tropes and whatnot, but we don't have everything. <laughs> it's not like the forgotten realms where it's like, no, no, anything that's ever been done in fantasy has to exist here. No, it's not. There's a lot of things from fantasy. I already mentioned some that don't exist there. There, there, uh, sci-fi elements in the wheel of time that you normally don't find in fantasy. And that's part of what makes it unique. That's part of why I love it. That's part of why, I'm reading the books again for at least the sixth or seventh time that I've read the entire thing. Um, whereas other books like the Dragonlance books or the Forgotten Realms books, none of those have I read more than once. Um, it, with the exception of Homeland, I've read twice. But none of the rest of those have I ever wanted to read again because they were kind of generic. Um, or at least they weren't 
unique, if, if that makes sense. So most of us probably as DMs and as storytellers, we, we don't want that for our games. We, we want our games to be something unique, something distinct, something original. Um, and, and we don't want it to just be a buffet of everything under the sun um, because that's not interesting. So I started thinking, you know, what is Primordia to me? Um, what do I want to do with this campaign? And, you know, I realized right away, I'm like, I want to focus on my city of Alondria and, and the regions around that. I want that to be the focus. It's the only city left. It's the last bastion of, of civilization um, in the world. And barbarian just doesn't fit with that. A, a barbarian fits in a campaign where we're going to be out um, as nomads. And, and we're going to tell a story about people who come from a nomadic culture. Um, honestly, barbarian doesn't fit in most D and D campaigns because how many D and D campaigns are about that, right? Um, you know, I I think of uh, for instance, Critical Role. I I watched a lot of the uh, first campaign of Critical Role. They had a barbarian in their group, and I remember there there's one or two times that they went to uh, God, I'm blinking on his name. Um, Grog, Grog's homeland or whatever, and, and dealt with other barbarians. And for those handful of sessions, Grog got to be a barbarian. And we got to remember, oh yeah, Grog's a barbarian. He comes from this other culture. And, and actually he came from a, a, a race, even, um, the, uh, the giant folk, uh, oh, I forget what they're called. The Goliaths, I think. Um, so he was a Goliath barbarian, you know, even more specific culture, but the rest of the time he was just basically a fighter with a rage mechanic, you know, like, (laughs) you know, there's a handful of sessions where him being a barbarian mattered and we actually got to see that. But the rest of the time he was a fish out of water with these other people who weren't barbarians, who were from very different cultures and, you know, he was a fighter with a rage mechanic, basically. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm not bashing on Critical Role at all. I'm just using that as an example. We've, we've all had games like this. We've all run games like this. We've all played in games like this. Um, I feel like the Druid's even a worse offender in my personal history. Because um, honestly, until recent years, I haven't seen people play Barbarians that much. But I've seen a lot of people play Druids. And um, a druid's another great example of that. You know, the the druid is a character who is of the wilderness. Who, I mean, no druid would want to sleep a single night in a city, much rather live in one. But how many druid PCs out there spend all their times in cities? Because that's what the rest of the party does. They don't actually get to be druids, right? They're they're a nature flavored wizard or cleric, basically. Um, and, you know, you've heard probably just like I have many complaints by Druid players that like, oh, you know, it's just not that fun to play a Druid because you're never in your element. You know, you're always in the city or you're in a dungeon. You know, they tried to fix it by coming up with a dungeon delving Druid subclass. They've done that numerous times through the history of D&D. Um, n- never really works um, because the whole shtick of the Druid is the wilderness, not the dungeon, not the city. Um so yeah, so I decided Barbarian just isn't going to work. Um, you know, with a lot of these, I looked at the different subclasses. 
because there's some like for for instance the rogue where i was like certain subclasses i'm okay with and and i'm actually like really stoked about and then other ones i'm like there's no way um but the barbarians one i just none it just doesn't fit as a class um i could see telling a story about a certain culture or a certain part of the world or a certain time period in the world where the barbarian would be the perfect thing and maybe everybody would be barbarians and druids and rangers or whatever um but for this campaign it just doesn't fit it doesn't work all right next we got bard so i personally love the bard it's it's one of my favorite classes it always has been and i feel like in fifth edition the bard is the best it's been as far as a a character who's fun to play um and a character who's fun to have at the table um so i really am inclined to make the bard work however i can so I, I didn't really have any thoughts of getting rid of the bard as a class, but I did want to look at the, the subclasses or the colleges of the bard. So first off, we have the College of Lore, and this was um, immediately in for me. This is what a bard is. This is the quintessential bard. This is the bard from previous generations. This is what we think of when we think of a bard. Um, so College of Lore is in... Um, frankly, that's what most bards would be. Um, next in the player's handbook, we have college of valor. Now at first I was like, yeah, college of valor is in, I'm, I'm cool with a bard that's more focused on, um, physical prowess and things like that. But as I started really reading about the college of valor, I see the, the, it says right here in the first sentence, bards of the college of valor are daring skulls whose tales keep alive the memory of the great heroes of the past. All right, Skalds, where's that come from? That's Vikings, right? Pretty sure. Um, again, that's a specific culture. That's a specific time period. That's a specific uh, type of story. So, you know, if you want to tell a Viking story, College of Valor Bard is perfect. Perfect. That's what the bards in that story would be. Um, so again, you know, this is kind of a, a perfect example of this, right? It's not like here's five different kinds of bard for any game. It's more like college of lore bard is if you want the traditional D&D bard or the kind of something kind of gleaning from some of the medieval bards and characters types like that, that, that existed in history. Um, for that kind of campaign, for a kind of European fantasy type campaign. Um, if you're wanting to do kind of a Viking or a Norse thing uh, or something more in that vein, then the College of Valor Bard is the one you should use. Not that you should use both in the same campaign. It depends on on the setting and the time period and all that stuff. So yeah, College of Valor is out because it, it's a scald and that's a different culture. It's a different time period. Um, but you know, Alondria, they don't have scalds. <laughs> they have bards. All right. Um, and that's all we have in the player's handbook. Now, I also looked at uh, Xanathar's Guide. Um, I, I decided, at least for now, to just limit it to the player's handbook and Xanathar's Guide. I've, I've moved more and more away from using the Unearthed Arcana stuff. Um, I... I I used to use it a lot more and, and as time goes on, I use it less and less and less just because more and more and more I find it is not 
I mean, it's obviously it's it's not been play tested, it's not been refined. Um, so there's always problems. And um I do enough homebrewing. I have enough things to worry about with the stuff I homebrew and and making all that work. I I'm not gonna work on wizards homebrewed stuff or other people's homebrewed stuff. Um, because honestly, it's not hard to homebrew for fifth edition. So it's far easier for me to create my own subclass or sub race or whatever I need than it is to find someone else's and then try to find all the possible problems with it and try to fix them. Because a lot of times you don't find those problems until you're playing. And then again, you have to retcon and and I don't want to retcon. uh, And especially when it comes to what player characters can do, I don't want to change what a player character can do, especially if it means taking things away, which usually is what it means because they've said when they design these things, they, they tend to go for a little OP to begin with, and then they can dial it back. Um, which is fine, but I just, you know, again, I, I don't want to play test that stuff anymore. Um, so, so I looked at what we have in Xanathar's guide and, um, Xanathar's guide, we had the college of glamour. So this is an example of something that I decided to not allow in the next campaign, not because it doesn't fit. It actually fits the world pretty well because part of the, the shtick with Primordia is there's a lot of influence from other planes and, and the plane plane of fairy is a big one. It's very heavily influenced with the plane of fairy. There are lots of places where the plane of fairy crosses over with Primordia. So having a, a bard who uses fey type magic and, and learned um, their magic in the Feywild or the Plane of Fairy uh, perfectly fits the setting, perfectly fits the themes and and all of that. Um, I have a, a player character in my campaign I'm running right now, Blood of the Avatars, uh, Manny. He plays a, a a glamour bard. It's a great class. It's a it's a fun. I mean, I've never played one myself, but it looks like a lot of fun to play. It's a lot of fun at the table. It's the ultimate social class um it it, you know it's all about charming magic and kind of mind control and making people like you which is just kind of doubling down on part of what a bard is good at to begin with um and it's a great class i i don't think it's overpowered um it can seem that way uh there there's definitely been encounters uh in my game and and if you listen to our actual play, you've heard some of them, uh, where something that was supposed to be a challenging combat encounter turned out to be a face walk because the glamour bard threw a couple spells and NPCs failed their saving throws and there was no fighting at all. Um, I'm okay with that once in a while. Now, if every, you know, if every single encounter is diffused like that, then that will get really old really fast. But if it's something that happens occasionally, that's awesome. That's that's the game as working as it intended. That's the class working as intended. Um, so all that said, uh, I, I enjoy Manny's character. I enjoy the class, but it is a bit much sometimes. And I'm very, very lucky that... Manny is playing the character. Um, first of all, all my players are awesome. 
Um, there's not one of them I'd worry about playing Glamour Bard, but there are definitely people I've played with in the past that I would not want to have access to the Glamour Bard. It can definitely be abused. Um, and not just so much in a, the characters overpowered kind of way, because honestly, when it comes to that kind of stuff, that charm stuff, I mean, really the only power they have is what you as a DM give them, right? Because all of those abilities, any kind of charm spell or anything like that, there, there's, there's loads of room for interpretation there. Um, when you read what the spells explicitly say you can do, actually what they say you can do is, is pretty limited. And a lot of the, the overpoweredness of those kinds of things don't come from what the spell actually says it can do or what the ability says it can do. It comes with how the DM interprets that. So you can interpret that in a way that leads to a very overpowered character or you cannot. You can also interpret it in a way that leads to a character that's completely ineffective and is frustrating for the player to play, which obviously you don't want to do that. Um, you know, I think the best place is somewhere in the middle, um, which, which is what I try to do. Um, so you can check out the actual play to, to see what you think of how well I manage that or not. But um, ultimately that power is given to the player by the DM. So I, I'm not even concerned about that because it's completely within my control. Um, it's more the, uh, how do you even say it? it? It's not the mechanical power of it. It's, it's the more, I guess the narrative power of it. it it's the way that it could be abused, not to make encounters too easy, not to avoid fights, but to basically have one character that solves the problems for the whole group all by themselves all the time, because that's how a glamour bard could easily go. If you had a player who did not care about the other players experience at the table, who was not awesome. Like my player Manny is, and is very judicious in how he uses his power (laughs) in the game. If you had a player that just tried to get as much out of it as they could, Um, they could end up really annoying the other players and really stealing thunder from the other players a lot because, um, a lot of things in the game are social. And if you have a character that can dominate socially, they can dominate, I'd say probably 80, 90% of the stuff you deal with in D and D. Um, occasionally you fight things that have no intelligence and can't be reasoned with and can't be charmed or whatnot. Um, but most things can be. Um, and if you have a a player character that that's what they're built around and they're really good at it, then they, they can just take over. Um, so, you know, in future campaigns, I'm happy saying that it's not allowed. And, and also partly because I'm assuming that my next campaign, it will be for the most part, the same players. And, you know, I know well, I shouldn't say I know. I assume Manny won't want to play a Glamour Bard again. Been there, done that, right? And I also feel fairly safe in assuming that none of the other players would want to do it either just because, well, that was Manny's character and I don't want to do the exact same thing that Manny just did, especially because he does it so well. Um, so I don't think it'll even really be a thing. I don't think anyone would even ask to play a Glamour Bard, but just as a DM in general, it's a lot easier before players even start thinking about their characters to say, Hey, just so you know, no glamor bards than it is 
after a player has already decided they want to play a glamour bard and you say, no, sorry, you can't do that. So it's just easier to, before they even think about characters, just say, Hey, you know, just so you know, uh, no glamour bards this time. So, yeah, so bards just really college of lore. Um, that's it for this. Uh, next is cleric. Cleric's gone. Enough said. No. <laughs> Uh, so again, I, I don't want to get too much into the world building stuff because that's not what this episode's about. If you want to hear more about this stuff, let me know. I'd be happy to talk about it. But uh, the next campaign, there are going to be no clerics. There are going to be no paladins. Um, there will either not be gods anymore or the way the gods work will be very different. And they're just, those roles won't exist. Um, I'm still working on what I'm going to do as far as healing magic, because I, I do still want healing magic to exist. I'm going to basically give those spells to other classes. I'm still deciding which classes and whether or not I'll create some new classes for that or, um, use classes that already exist, but, but kind of in, in, in a very small nutshell tip, tip of the iceberg of the nutshell. Um, I'm wanting something more like the wheel of time where healing magic is just another kind of magic. It's not like you have to be a specific class and worship it. God to practice that magic. It's just, it, it's one of the many forms of magic. Some people are good at it. Some people aren't, some people can do it. Some people can't, but it's not, it's got nothing to do with, I, I'm basically, I'm getting rid of um, the gods and, and that type of religion, maybe religion entirely, because I'm just not a fan of it. And I mean, part, part of making uh, your own fantasy setting is it's a fantasy setting. It kind of gets to be whatever you want it to be. So I kind of want to run in a game without religion. Um and, and this is something I could go on and on forever about. Uh, I feel like the cleric's always been kind of shoehorned into this game. I don't really think it fits. Um, it's not a common trope you see in fantasy literature. There are no clerics in Tolkien that I recall. Um, it was a D&D thing um, for reasons, most of them not good reasons in my book, that it was included. Um, and yeah, I'm very happy to finally get rid of it. And that no one ever plays it. No one ever wants to play cleric, at least not in my games. I did a whole series of episodes about trying to make the clay, the cleric more, uh, more attractive to players. So more players would play them. Um, and yeah, it's just easier just to not have them. Don't need them. All right. So no clerics, uh, next is Druid. Uh, what did I say? Yeah, no Druids. Um, so the Druid, there's there's a couple things here. First of all, like the Barbarian, it just doesn't fit um, in, in the campaign I want to run, a campaign based on a city. Not saying it's going to all take place in the city, but everybody is from the city. That's their base of operations. And, and that's not what a Druid's about. And instead of having some poor player play this poor character who never gets to be in their element or rarely does, like poor Grog... <laughs> Or or Keyleth from Critical Role, they had a druid too, you know. Um, and you know, they traveled a lot, but but that you know, I don't remember a lot of focus in that campaign being on the wilderness and being in the wilderness and protecting the wilderness, right? Like that's what druids are all about. 
So it's like, I feel like for me personally, if I was going to play a druid for me to be satisfied as a druid player, I would want the issue of the wilderness being protected from the growth of civilization to come into play and be one of the major themes of the campaign um, and should be, you know, to make a druid really shine. Um, so if that's not the story you want to tell as a DM, then your druid's going to feel left out the whole time. So easier just to say, hey, why don't you not play a druid instead of letting someone play this character where they're going to be feel like they're left out the whole campaign and they never or rarely get their moment in the sun, so to speak. So again, you know, this is all to create the best experience for your players and for yourself. It's, it's not to be like, oh, player, that thing you really love that you want to do, you can't do it. Ha ha ha. That's not the point. No, it's so that they pick something that fits what you're wanting to do really well so that it will be enjoyable for them instead of picking something that doesn't fit at all. And you're constantly annoyed because they're playing this character that doesn't fit at all. And they're constantly annoyed because they're playing a character that doesn't fit at all. It's like you can just avoid all those problems from the very beginning, from, from, you know, from ground zero by just not having it. Um, the, the other thing is the, the wild shape is really complicated and really a mechanical, just can of worms. Um, as is, you know, some of the summoning stuff, um, depending how you run combats and what kind of combats you're doing and, and what the druid player does with it can really, um, bring your game to its screeching halt. And, you know, I've run for, a a few players who played druids in fifth edition and this has always come up. Um, and, and part of it's just because it's, it's a very, it, it's one of the most effective parts of a druid's kit, so to speak, is their ability to summon these creatures. So any player who's at all strategic or tactically minded is going to feel like they have to use it because it's one of their best, um, weapons or, or tools that they can use. Um, so, yeah, so that's another reason, but but really the biggest reason is just it it doesn't fit. Um, it'd be different if I were telling a, a story set in the wilderness and about you know defending you know a pristine forest from advancing loggers or something like that. Like a druid would be awesome for that, but but that's not the story I'm wanting to tell, and I don't want someone playing class that's going to be marginalized the whole campaign. All right, fighter. I mean, fighters are in fighters fit into anything. Um, as far as our subclasses, uh, we have the battle master. Awesome. I love the battle master. Uh, we have the champion and I actually considered not allowing the champion just because I think it's mechanically not a good choice. I think it's inferior in any measurable way to the battle master and, and to other um, fighter subclasses, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's not going to hurt the game. And it's not, it's not like the Druid or the monk or the bar barbarian where the player will, will always be like a duck out of water. Um, so yeah, I'm fine with it. I would just probably, 
And, and it's, it is a good class. You know, sometimes you have players that just for whatever reason, they just don't want to deal with anything. Maybe they don't have any time to think about their character between sessions. Maybe they're new to the game or they just have a lot of other stuff on their mind and they just want to play something really mechanically simple. And even the battle master might be a bit too much for them to worry about. And so for those people, champion fighter is a good option. So, so I want to leave it in. Um, for right now, the Eldritch Knight is still in. Um, that one's kind of a maybe, depending on some of the stuff I might change about how magic works and stuff um, may or may not work. But but for now, I'm thinking it, it will be a good fit. Also, uh, from Xanathar's Guide, the Arcane Archer. Um, however, that will be a strictly elf-only uh, option. All right, next is the Ranger. All right, so Ranger, is it? Is that next? No, Monk. <laughs> I'm getting out of order. Uh, monk, no monks. Um, I mean, Monk, monk it, it's a cultural thing. Monks come from, you know, Chinese and, and Japanese uh, stories or that that kind of uh, genre, I guess, subgenre of fantasy, like that kind of thing. Um, so if you're going to run like, you know, a a feudal Japan kind of story and you want to have ninjas and samurais and then the monk would, might be a good fit for that. But, um, for what I'm doing for, you know, your traditional European fantasy kind of thing, there's no place for them. They don't fit. Um, yeah. And, and the thing is, is, you know, I can already hear objections some people might be having of like, well, why can't I say my characters from far away from a distant land? Well, maybe. I mean, first of all, that's so overdone. <laughs> it's a cliche itself. You know, it's almost like saying you're you're an orphan or adopted. Um, but the thing is, if the monk were the only class like that, m- maybe. But what happens if your party, you have a monk and a druid and a barbarian <laughs> starting out in this city. They're all from distant lands and cultures. It's like nobody in the party is actually from the place. It's like, you know, the D and D groups where you're in this world where it's supposedly mostly humans, but yet nobody in the party is actually a human. It's like, sure. Once in a blue moon that can work, but when that's 90% of the groups out there, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, and and just honestly, I don't think the monk's worth it. It's not worth the trouble to try to make it fit or to try to divorce it from all the cultural stuff, which honestly you really can't, I don't think. Um, and also, it's not a popular class. I, I've never seen many people playing monks in my games, so it's not much of a loss. Anyway, um, Paladin. Paladin's out. I already talked about that. There, there's going to be no, quote, divine magic happening uh, magic is magic. It doesn't, it just comes from wherever magic comes from. It doesn't come from the gods. Um, so no need or use for paladins. Um, now paladin is one so far. I've been happy with all these. I, I haven't had any reservations about any of the things I've cut out. Paladin is the one I'm a little iffy on just because some of the mechanics is, are really cool. Um, the specifically the divine smite, or the smite paladin smite um, is a pretty cool mechanic. 
but I don't think it's cool enough to like, again, shoehorn a paladin into something where it doesn't fit. So what I might end up doing, um, if I keep going forward with this is perhaps coming up with my own class where I can use some of those mechanics in a different way. Um, and, and give it a different spin other than a holy warrior, um, which, which isn't going to be a thing in, in my setting in in this campaign. Uh, next is the ranger. Now the ranger, you might think I'd cut that out for the same reasons as I would the monk and the barbarian. And maybe I should, I mean, you could definitely make that argument, um, that they're more about the wilderness, but to me, to me, the, the, the ranger has always seemed more the person who has a foot in two worlds. You know, the, the Druid is all about nature. They have no interest in civilization. They don't go in the cities. They would never spend the night in a city. They'd much rather go sleep in the wilderness. Um, barbarians kind of the same thing. They, they're, they come from a culture where they, they live in nomadic camps um, they, they probably wouldn't have the aversion to a city that a druid would have to that degree, but they still wouldn't be comfortable in one. And, and that wouldn't be their chosen environment. Um, but I always kind of saw a ranger as again, someone who's got their foot in both worlds. It's like, yes, they're comfortable in the wilderness, but they can also navigate society and civilization with a level of proficiency and comfort that the barbarian and the druid cannot, Um, they're kind of almost the ambassadors between the civilization and wilderness. And especially for this campaign, I'm thinking about, about the last city of Alondria, um, Rangers would have a very important role in the city as, um, scouts and people that go out into the, the wilds around the city and keep tabs on what's going on and, and things like that. Um, so, so I think Rangers fit great. Um, definitely the, uh, the hunt, hunt Ranger, uh, what's it called? Uh, the hunter archetype, um, is a great class. No beast master. So, uh, kind of two reasons for that. The, the first, well, I guess it's really just one reason. One reason is the class just kind of sucks. Um, the mechanics are not good. And there is a revised ranger in the unearthed arcana that I've let people use in the past, but I think it is a little overpowered and honestly still isn't great. It's better than the beast master in the book, but it's still not great. And, you know, has all the problems with, you know, unearthed arcana stuff, not being play tested, not being refined and all that. Um, so, yeah. And, and the, I don't know, the whole animal companion thing again, you know, if I were running a, a, a wilderness campaign, that would make more sense. But, but when the campaign's going to be based in a city, you know, it doesn't make sense that the ranger would bring his tiger or whatever it is into the city. I mean, obviously that wouldn't happen. And yet it happens in so many D and D games because the, the DMS don't want to take the ranger's companion away, even though there's no way the officials of the city would let a wild animal in the city, no matter how well it was trained, especially one that's like not in a cage. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And, uh, again, mechanically it's just not there. It's, uh, 
I, I want to eliminate options that are not good options that are hidden traps, so to speak, where a player is going to get into this class and be like, wow, my character kind of sucks compared to everybody else. Um, and Beastmaster is definitely one of those things. Um, Champion Fighter is a little more borderland for me. I don't think it's as bad as some people make it out to be. Um, Eldritch Knight's kind of borderland too. Um, but yeah, the Beastmaster Ranger, it's just got too many problems. All right, next is Rogue. Oh, wait, hang on, hang on. Um, I keep forgetting about Xanathar's Guide. Uh, so one thing I do want to allow from Xanathar's Guide for the Ranger is the Horizon Walker. A uh, super clu- cool subclass that fits Primordia perfectly. Uh, a Horizon Walker is a Ranger who specializes in uh, portals and incursions from other planes and and fighting those kinds of creatures and and just fits uh, my setting perfectly and I love it so so yes so for Ranger we have the Hunter and the Horizon Walker as options. Uh, so next we go to Rogue. Um, so let me talk about the assassin first, uh, assassins out. Um, I mean, an assassin's an evil character. Now I'm sure people are going to make arguments of, Oh, I can play a non-evil assassin and maybe you could get away with a neutral assassin, but people will even argue I can play a good aligned assassin because I only kill evil people that I'm convinced are evil. Well, first of all, that's not how assassins work. You're not an assassin. Then (laughs) assassins are people by definition are people who kill for money. And as someone who kills for money, you don't have the luxury of deciding or vetting who you're going to kill or not. You're not freaking Dexter here. Okay. Um, that's not an assassin that that would be some other class if that's what you want to do. Um, because they're trained on how to assassinate, people right not how to fight someone who's defending themselves how to assassinate people so yeah so this is an instance where this is a character that just doesn't fit from an alignment or or more to the point because you know i'm not a fan of alignment from a a morality point of view for i want to tell a heroic story now some people don't some people like telling stories about evil characters or about characters who are morally gray or whatever. And, and maybe in your campaign, an assassin would be fine. But in the stories I want to tell, I want to tell heroic stories of people being heroes and being heroic and, and doing good in the world. And assassin has no place in that great NPC, but has no place as a player character. Um, now the, the, what's a little more iffy for me and the jury's still out is the uh, the arcane trickster and the thief. And I'm kind of on the fence here. So if you have an opinion or, or thoughts, let me know. So I'm kind of thinking in the same vein as the assassin, the, the arcane trickster and the thief don't really fit and have a place because again, they're, they're going to tend to be evil or non good characters because their whole thing is they steal from people. Um, it might be a little, you might be a little more successful making a good argument that you could have a character who's a thief 
or an arcane trickster who's still a quote good character overall. Um, and and you can even point to examples in fantasy literature and whatnot. However, I, I will point out to you that most, if not all of those characters you may think of, they either, well, they, they don't do much, if any actual thieving and, and most, if not all of them give up their thieving ways pretty early in the story. So maybe they started out the story as a thief, but they're really not at the end. Right. Um, because again, it, it, they don't fit. They're not heroes. It, that's not a heroic character. That's the opposite of a heroic character. That's a character in it for themselves and in it to get ahead at the expense of innocent people. Right. And again, you could be like, Oh, I steal from evil people. It's like, well, yeah. Okay. Whatever. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence and this is one of the ones like, this is kind of a darling thing, which I've said that twice now. So, so what I mean by that, that's a, a term I've heard some, some writers use, uh, which the idea is, is you have this darling, which is this, this idea that you think or thought was a really good idea, but actually isn't a good idea or doesn't really fit, or maybe it fit to begin with, but your story is evolved and it no longer fits, but you, you don't want to let it go because you're just so in love with it, with the idea, but it's actually not a good idea. And it will actually improve the story if you get rid of it. Um, so I think for instance, um, alignment is a darling of D and D that they kept in just, um, honestly, if I'm just going to be brutal and real, I, I think they just kept it in to pander to players from previous editions so that they could say alignment was still in the game. Um, I don't think they really wanted to keep it in. I don't think that they think it's a good thing because it has no mechanical bearing in the game other than a handful of sentient magic items that care about your alignment, but nothing else in no other way does alignment have any mechanical relevance in the game at all. The no alignment spell doesn't exist anymore. Um, other magics that, that cared about alignment or, or dealt with alignment no longer do like even the spell called detect evil and good actually has nothing to do with detecting alignment at all does not detect evil or good. It detects whether or not you're from another plane. That's what it does in fifth edition. Um, so it's basically like they, they didn't want it to be in the game, but they didn't quite have the courage to take it out. So they kind of barely left it in just to again, pander to old D and D players even though it doesn't really fit the game or have a place anymore. Um, we've outgrown it. I mean, honestly, I, I don't think people were moralistically simple <laughs> in the seventies or whenever they first came up with alignment. So I don't know why it ever was a thing to begin with, but um, yeah, it's definitely, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, so I feel like the thief for me is kind of like that. It's like, well, Thieves have always been a part of D&D, which they haven't actually always been a part of D&D, but they've been a part of D&D for a long time. And I do kind of wonder, you know, it's like, but what does it do to D&D if you don't have thieves anymore? But on the other hand, I haven't had a lot of people play them either. So it probably wouldn't, as far as my games, wouldn't have much of any impact if I disallowed them. Um, so at this point, I'm kind of leaning towards I'd allow thief and arcane trickster, but it would really depend on the character concept and how the player is going to play them, which just hearing me say that makes me think I should probably just take them out. Um, cause it shouldn't be that situational. 
um, you know, that's a problem class right there, right? You know, it's if it's like you can play a thief, but you can't play a thief the way you would naturally assume you would play a thief because it's not going to fit the group dynamic. You can't actually be stealing people and be non-good. Then why play a thief? So again, you know, that's another class that'd be great for a certain campaign where everybody's thieves or everybody's um, on the wrong side of the law. But for a lot of campaigns and, and for my campaign, um, probably doesn't fit. So so actually right now, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I got my little list here. I'm drawing a line through the thief and the arcane trickster. Because I mean, basically the arcane trickster is just a thief who also uses magic. So it's like if one doesn't work, the other one doesn't either. Um, there are a couple... Uh, other options for the thief uh, that I really do like. So I guess I've actually at this point eliminated all of the options from the player's handbook. Um, but from Xanathar's guide, I really like the inquisitive and the scout, uh, both of which do fit uh, my setting and what I want to do with this campaign perfectly. Um, so those are great options. If someone really wants to play a rogue, they can be an inquisitive or a scout. All right, next we have Sorcerer. Um, now this again, might I, I might do something crazy with the magic. And if I do, that could affect things like wizards and warlocks and sorcerers and bards and whatnot. But, but I'm still thinking about that. So for now, the Sorcerer is in. Um, and I'm cool with uh, the Draconic Bloodline and Wild Magic that we have in uh, the Player's Guide. And um, those fit fine, especially since I don't have Dragonborn in my world because I think they're super dumb. Uh, so for someone that just really wants to have something dragon about their character, they, they can be a draconic sorcerer and, and get that, that itch scratched, hopefully. Um, and then also the storm sorcery from Xanathar's Guide, I'm, I'm a fan of. Um, so that'll be a thing. Uh, Warlock is one I've strongly considered just axing completely um but and and again the some of the same reasons uh if you look at the uh what are they called the patrons the fiend and the great old one i mean how are you not an evil character if you're a warlock of the fiend how are you not an evil evil character and if you're not an evil character now you will be eventually or you're not going to be a warlock anymore right i mean come on same thing with the great old one, or you're just insane or both. Um, neither of which uh, play well with others, whether you're insane or evil. Um, so for, for my campaign, they're not going to work. Um, the one that, that, that could work is the Archfey. Again, I, I've said, you know, fairy is a big thing in my world. And, you know, the Fae aren't necessarily evil or good. Um, so just because your patron is, is a powerful fae doesn't mean your character has to be or should be evil um, or is going to be twisted toward evil throughout their career. Um, so that one can work if someone really wants to play Warlock. Um, personally, I'm not a huge fan of the class. I, I don't think the game would lose anything if I took it out, but some people really like it. So I'm, I'm cool if someone really wants to play at Warlock, they could do Archfey. That, that could work. Um, next we have blade sing or blade singing. We have the wizard. I guess I just uh, gave myself away there. Uh, so as it stands in the player's handbook, we, we have the different schools of magic as specialties. So for now, those are all good. Uh, other than necromancer, 
Um, for the same reasons, I'm not allowing assassin and I'm not allowing thief. Uh, you know, a necromancer is going to be evil or on their way to evil if they're not. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, you know, necromancy in, in any kind of civilized place would be um, illegal. You wouldn't be able to practice it, you know? So yeah, it'd just be a headache. So <laughs> why deal with headaches? Um, so again, if I, if I do something different with magic, um, it would definitely affect this because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the schools of magic. Um, so I, I'd like to reconceptualize magic. I, I'd honestly, I'd like to get away from the Vancean stuff, which is the spell slots and all that. Um, I'd like to have a more free form magic system. Um, yeah, something like in, in the wheel of time role-playing game, I keep bringing back the wheel of time, but, uh, uh, they had a really cool magic system. And honestly, the only reason I don't just use that one because I love it is because I would have to re redo all the spells to make them fit the other system. And that would be a ton of work. So that's really the only reason I'm not just like, I'm just going to use the will of time magic system because it's awesome. Um, so that's a system based on five elements, air, earth, fire, water, and spirit, as opposed to magic schools. Um, so if I went that way, then the subclasses of wizard might be um, focuses on those those different elements. But it, but again, I would have to go through every spell and, and decide which of the elements each of the spells use. And a lot of that would be very subjective, which means it would be difficult and time consuming. So yeah, I'm not... I'm not in a huge hurry to do that. And then uh, we have the blade blade singer uh, from Xanathar's guide, which again would be an elf only thing. So yeah, so, so I took out the barbarian completely took out the cleric completely took out the druid monk and paladin completely uh, bard. I got rid of the college of valor um, fighter I kept everything in a player's handbook and added the arcane archer from Xanthar's guide, uh, ranger. I got rid of the beast master, but I added the horizon walker from Xanathar's guide, uh, rogue. I got rid of everything in the player's handbook, uh, the thief arcane trickster and assassin. Uh, but I added the inquisitive and the, uh, scout from Xanathar's guide uh, sorcerer, it's it's all the stuff from the player's handbook plus uh, storm sorcery from Xanathar's guide. Warlock, I got rid of everything but the archfey. Uh, wizards, pretty much as is with uh, adding the blade singing from from Xanathar's guide. Um, yeah. So so yeah, you know, kind of just to summarize all this as far as the reasons. Um, so it seems like my reasons kind of fell into a few categories. Um, some of these classes I removed because they were based on a specific culture or a specific time period or a specific subgenre of fantasy um, that doesn't fit what I'm wanting to do. Um, oh, and and uh, I forgot to mention the the barbarian is sword and sorcery fantasy, which, which I'm doing high fantasy. So it doesn't really fit in that way. Um, 
So some of them, you know, I, I kind of feel like all those are kind of the same thing. It, it was either from a specific culture or a specific time period or a specific genre of fantasy that just doesn't fit the time period culture and genre of fantasy that, that I'm doing. Um, some of them were removed because they led to characters that wouldn't fit in the group, mostly for moral reasons, because it would lead to quote evil characters or non good characters or characters who would not be heroes, who would not be part of a heroic group trying to save the day. Um, so that's things like your assassin and some of your warlocks and some of your other rogue stuff. Um, and then some I removed just because the mechanics weren't there. Um, like your, your beast master ranger, uh, or the, uh, what was the other one? felt like there was another one that I said I took out because I didn't like the mechanics. Um, but Beastmaster Ranger is a big one. Um, it's just not an effective character. It, it doesn't hold up with the other characters. It's not equal to the other characters in potential. Um, and, and then the final reason, well, no, I guess that's it. I, I guess I, I was going to say the fourth thing is, as far as the reason to remove something is because I think it would lead to a less than great experience for the player. But I get, I guess that's kind of what all three of the other ones are about. That's kind of summarizing everything. So, you know, if you're playing a character that doesn't fit the genre or the culture or the time period of the rest of the campaign, and the rest of the characters, you're, you're not going to be as satisfied because your character doesn't fit. Or like, for instance, with a, with a druid, you, you may not, get a chance to use some of your cool abilities cause you're never out in the wilderness or whatever. Um, if your character doesn't fit the group because your character is evil and everybody else's heroes or your character is just non heroic or not someone that would be an adventurer. Um, that's not going to be super satisfying for you in the long term. And if you're playing a class like the beast master that just mechanically, uh, doesn't measure up to the other classes, you're, if you at all care about the performance of your character or how good your character is at their job, um, you're not going to be super satisfied with that either. So that's it. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, that this is what you should do, that you should follow my list and not use these classes. I'm not using, um, not at all. Um, with the, with the exception maybe of the Beastmaster Ranger, there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of these classes. Uh, they just don't fit into every game. And, and I think you could say that for almost every class, if not every class in the game, that it's not going to fit in every game. It's not going to fit in every campaign, nor, nor should it, nor should you try to make it fit. Um, and I, I guess just my final thought on this is, you know, one of the roadblocks for me and why I think I didn't have this realization sooner. Cause it, it was one of those things where once the idea hits you, you feel like you should have had this idea 20 years ago, or at least I do. I'm like, why, <laughs> why for all these years that I feel like I had to use all the classes in the player's handbook or, or use all these classes that don't fit instead of just saying no. Um, and, and it was, it was a blind spot. And, and I think it really came down to, not wanting to take options away from the players. Um, but 
I mean, the truth is, even if all you have is the player's handbook, there are so many choices in there that b- between all the subclasses. Um, if you add up all the subclasses, you have so many choices just in your class that even taking half of them out isn't limiting your player's choices that much. They still have plenty of choices, you know, and, and unless you take out everything that can use magic and you have a player that really wanted to use magic, you know, unless you do something like that where you, you take out everything that represents a certain type of character or something. Um, they're, they're still going to have plenty of choices. And especially if like me, if you pull in some other things, like I pulled in some stuff from Xanathar's guide, um, th- it's still more choices than we had in the second edition player's handbook, or even I think the third edition player's handbook. Um, so it's more choices than people had in the past and it's plenty you know, it really is. And the the point of this is to really define what is this campaign? You know, what is, what is the theme of my campaign? What is the feel and flavor of it? What subgenre or genres of fantasy am I trying to emulate here? Am I going for high fantasy? Am I going for grimdark? Am I going for, um, some kind of steampunk kind of thing, or am I going for um, sword and sorcery? Those are all very different. They have different tropes and they have different characters that fit them and different characters that don't fit them. So instead of being like the forgotten realms or being like the player's handbook and just throwing everything, but the kitchen sink into your game and then wondering why it doesn't seem to have an identity or why it feels generic or why you have player characters that just don't seem to fit, um, you know, be selective. You know, there's this saying um, in creativity. I, I don't know if it's a writing thing or in all forms of creativity. I've, I've mainly heard it with writing, but I, I think it works with any... I, I No, I take it back. I've heard it in music too. I think it's any kind of creativity. But where... I, I don't remember the exact words of the saying or whatever. But the basic idea is that um, constraints breed creativity, right? So so if I give you 20 classes to choose from, you know, maybe one of those 20 will really jump out at you and, and you'll be able to do something creative with it. But, but in and of itself, giving you 20 things to choose from, it, it doesn't really... Um, foster creativity or, or inspire creativity. But if I start giving you constraints, if I start giving some limitations, then figuring out how to work within those limitations, that's where you get creative, you know? So maybe, maybe you have an idea of a, of a character concept that I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't try to think of this stuff off the top of my head, but um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you'd have a, an idea of a type of character you wanted to play. And I say, like, maybe you have an idea for a thief character, right? I don't know. And I say, well, sorry, you can't play a thief, but you can play a scout, which is another type of rogue you know, maybe you can make your idea work with a scout and maybe it'll work fine. And maybe you'll be like, Oh, actually scout works fine. And I can totally do what I was going to do. And it's fine. 
or maybe it won't, but maybe you can take your idea and make it fit a scout. And just the exercise of having to do that, just those constraints being put in place that you have to work around will lead to you having ideas and coming up with things to do with this character that you would not have done otherwise. If you could have just played a thief, you wouldn't have had those cool things. And and those are the kind of things that are really going to make your character unique and stand out. And, and, you know, a criticism I hear a lot about uh, fifth edition is that, you know, too often characters of the same class and the same subclass feel the same, like, like, and, and especially for non spellcasting characters, once you pick your class and your subclass, which you've done by third or fourth level, your character is the same. And and there are no more decision points for you to define how your character is going to be different unless you take a feat or something. But even that's a pretty minor thing. Um, and I think that's a valid criticism, but this is a way that you can make your rogue different from every other rogue. Well, first of all, you're going to be a scout instead of a thief, which is going to make you different. But, but just having to fit your initial thief concept into the scout mold is going to lead to things that are going to not be your stereotypical rogue and will make your character different and unique. And I think that's, um, at the end of the day, that's a good thing, I think. So I'm really curious what, what you think about this. And I'm, I'm happy to hear both perspectives, whichever perspective you have, or if, if you can come at it from both perspectives, whether as a, as a DM or a player, um, I, I'd really like to hear what you think about all this, um, as a, as a DM or as a player, you know, as a player, how would you feel if the DM did what I just did and crossed out a bunch of stuff from the player's handbook and said, yeah, these are options for this campaign. How'd you feel about that? Um, do you think it'd be a big deal or, or not? Or do you think that as long as the DM left enough there that, that you could find something that you'd be excited to play that fit within those constraints um, with, you know, the knowledge that your character is actually going to fit. You're not, you don't have that risk of playing a character who doesn't really fit what's going on. Doesn't fit the story. Doesn't fit the setting. Doesn't fit the group. And because of that rarely gets to shine um, because they're playing a Druid and you're always in the city or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so yeah, what do you think? What are your thoughts? And, and as, as a DM, do you, do you already do this? And am I stating something that's obvious to you? And you're like, well, duh, Lex, where have you been? Um, or, or like me, is this something you never even really thought about as a possibility, um, removing these options and, and that it might actually be a good thing to do and uh, might lead to a better game for you and your players. Let me know what you think. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for episode 280. Went kind of long today. I hope that's all right with you. But uh, yeah, I, I, I found this really interesting and, and uh, I was really excited to talk with you about it and, and kind of share these thoughts with you and, and see what you all think of it. Um, but I, I think for me going forward in, in this game and any other game I run, I, I think I will definitely come from a place of no longer assuming that I have to use everything in the book and, um, 
especially with D&D, it's such a smorgasbord of, of random stuff anyway that uh, I feel like you really have to pick and choose to have your your setting and your game and your campaign have, have its own identity. Um, because if you don't, if you just use everything like I have been doing, um, it's just going to be like everybody else's game. And that's kind of boring. At least I think so. But what do you think? Let me know. Um, you can shoot me an email at dungeonmastersjourney at gmail.com or you can comment on the show notes for this episode at starwalkerstudios.com slash dungeonmastersjourney. Uh, if you'd like to follow me in t- on Twitter, you can find me at like Starwalker. And I also have a voicemail. If you'd like to call and, and give me your thoughts verbally, that would be awesome. And then I can maybe uh, have some of that on the show it would be cool. Uh, that number is 951-GMJ-LEX-1. That's 951-465-5391. And that's GMJ because the show used to be called Game Master's Journey. And uh, I couldn't get a DMJ number. So we're just keeping the old number. Um, feel free to join our communities on MeWe and Discord. Um, yeah, not a lot of activity on either of those places lately, I will say, and I'm guilty of that too. Um, I don't know. I just feel like MeWe's not really taken off. I mean, I've, I'm a member, I'm a lurker of some of the D and D communities on there. And, um, it's like one or two people posting all the time and that's it. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of a, kind of a shame. Um, we, we had a lot of activity on our Google plus community, but, but Google plus is no more. And, uh, I boycott Facebook and you should too. So, uh, that's not an option. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know, but, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say if, if you want to connect with people, uh, probably the best place would be the Discord server. Um, it'll be quiet for a long time and then, you know, someone starts something and, and then it'll be it'll be popping again. So if you have something you want to talk to people about, uh, shoot it out there and, and I'll see it at least. And uh, yeah, uh, let's see if you want to support the show. I have a support page on the website, starwalkersheroes.com slash support. You can find out how you can become a patron, uh, get my Amazon referral link. Uh, there's a donate button on the site you can use as well. Um, so that's there. And, uh, of course, another great way to support what I'm doing is to check out my self-published D&D supplements. You can find those at starwalkersheroes.com as well. So I hope that you have a chance to play some D&D this week. I hope you have a chance to run some D&D. And, uh, if you do, let me know how it goes. Um, I, would really love to hear more war stories from you guys about your D&D ga- games, especially if there's something, uh, that you learned uh, whether as a player or as a, as a DM that you think would be beneficial to the other listeners. Um, if you have a story and, and what you learned from it, that'd be great. Um, great way to kind of share that out to people, what, what we've all learned in our games. So I'll be back soon, hopefully, with another episode. Uh, keep the feedback coming. And uh, if you have a request or a suggestion for a topic, let me know. And uh, hopefully I'll be talking to you again soon. And until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production. Your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. 
This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey. 